This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress has fewer than six weeks left to figure out how to avert a government shutdown. But for the moment, the focus is on multi-year spending, including the infrastructure package that got bipartisan support in the Senate and a separate $3.5 trillion package supported by Democrats. To talk more about what's ahead on The Kill this week, we're joined by Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Lauren, thanks for being here. And let's start with the House Rules Committee, which is going to have a big day, possibly a big week. Uh, Talk us through uh, some of the measures that they're going to be considering. Sure. Well, this is already a little bit unusual to be talking about the House in August when they're normally back in their districts or on vacation for for the normal August recess. But uh, they're coming back this week to tackle some pretty big pieces of legislation. Um, Three are going to come before the Rules Committee today. Uh, The first is a budget resolution that the Senate sent over in their last week of business, um, which doesn't matter in itself as much as setting the stage for a later reconciliation package. The second item is the infrastructure deal that the Senate passed also that same week and sent over to the House. Um, They're at least going to take it through the Rules Committee um, and start the procedural work on that. And then the third is a Voting Rights Act measure that would amend some of the Voting Rights Act law that was passed many years ago and then amended a few times, but really affected by a couple of Supreme Court cases that Democrats want to rewrite the way that it works um, in ways that they think would expand voting rights, but will run into some pressure. So those three pieces of legislation, pretty big deals. Those will at least start making their way through the Rules Committee today. As far as the $3.5 trillion package goes, how much does the Rules Committee process set the final parameters around what that's going to be? Does that give some finality to what the House version is going to look like, or is it still subject to quite a bit of further amendment? Um, It might just send it straight to the floor and get an up or down vote. Um, This resolution itself doesn't matter as much as what they're going to be doing in the weeks to come. This is really kicking off the process to write that $3.5 trillion bill. Um, There's a lot of numbers in this resolution and some policy assumptions underlining it, I should say, that they're going to eventually write bills with this amount of tax and spending changes in it that will have a wide reach in the federal government. Um, But this is kind of a procedural step to get there. Uh, The Senate passed, uh, adopted it on a party line vote. We'll likely see that again in the House. Um, Although what's key in the House is, I know we talk a lot about the 50-50 majority in the Senate. Um, We're talking about a 220 to 212 majority in the House, very narrow. They've got to really keep the Democrats in line, um, which is one of the reasons that the infrastructure bill is also coming in to debate this week, whereas that wasn't originally in Democratic leaders' plans. And and you mentioned the $3.5 trillion package may go straight to the floor. We're not even sure at this point that the infrastructure package is going to get to the floor at all until and unless the Senate passes the, the bigger spending package. Is that still true? Right. Well, that's kind of the delicate dance that's going on here. A group of moderates, nine of them, have been pressuring Nancy Pelosi to schedule a vote on that infrastructure bill because they are part of the Problem Solvers Caucus. They're in the middle of their party. They'd like a win on this infrastructure deal. Uh, But there are progressives who don't want to let the bipartisan package that would increase spending by about $550 billion over the next few years. They don't want to let that through until this larger package that has more of the social spending that they'd like to see become law move. So there's there's a lot of maneuvering here by the progressive wing, the moderate wing, um, 
the, the adoption of this budget resolution is a first step, but again, not the details, not the actual tax law changes and spending law changes that would need to be made. So um, the, the argument that some have made is let, let, let's clear the decks of this resolution. We'll be coming back in the coming weeks to do the reconciliation bill itself um, and try to work that out. So I think that's one of the things that when members get back into town, face each other, meet as a caucus, uh, they'll be weighing what to do with that. Yeah. And I think one of the many reasons it's important to get that uh that reconciliation package figured out sooner than later is it's going to determine how much revenue the Democrats are going to need to uh, want to uh, add in the in their upcoming tax package also, right? Right. And there will be a tax package here. So some of the provisions that will be in this bill will be expanding tax, basically payments through the tax system. And one of the ways we've seen that already is through the increased child tax credit. Um, there's a plan to put an expansion of that in there, an extension, give that to people for a longer period of time. So that would be a way in which we would increase the deficit through tax changes. But they'll also be looking for ways to offset or pay for this package, at least in part, to try to bring that 3.5 trillion number down to a, a smaller number. Um, there are a number of Democrats, and again, it only takes a few Democrats to really have muscle in this discussion who are uncomfortable with the size of this package. In the Senate, we saw Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema um, from West Virginia and Arizona Respectively, both say the number made them a little uncomfortable and that may push it down. Um, they may also work to get more and more offsets in there to try and limit the total addition to the deficit, even if a higher number could be allowed under this uh, resolution. So um, the like I say, the resolution is kind of setting the parameters for this little later debate, but that later debate has a lot of steps yet to go. All right. And I guess the other main thing, perhaps not surprisingly to our listeners happening on the Hill this week is a whole lot of briefings on Afghanistan, I think, right? Yeah, I think we'll, we might not see a lot in the open on this. We might see a lot of closed door briefings with um, members of the administration talking to folks on Capitol Hill. But um, this will be the first chance that people will be face to face in Washington again. Um, and anytime that happens after a major foreign policy development, there are going to be a number of questions. We've heard voices on both sides of the aisle who are not happy with the way that our exit from Afghanistan has gone and, and how they've handled some of the evacuations of both U.S. citizens who are there and then our our allies in Afghanistan who helped us as translators or worked with journalists, worked with companies over there. So there are going to be a lot of questions about um, what went into the actual exits and what went into the planning and, you know, was the intelligence what we needed it to be? Was it flawed? Um, I think the intelligence committee will do a lot of work behind closed doors on that. So we may not see a lot, but there will be a lot happening behind the scenes on Afghanistan, to be sure. All right. Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Lauren, thanks as always. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. And during his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. 
You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and 
without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, DC, I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit Shipt.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. 
First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.